everyone, I'm Taffney Hopper, and you're listening to Talking Nonprofits, a podcast about the world of nonprofits. Follow along so you too can learn how to make a difference in your community. On today's episode, we have the Executive Director of Science Inc. at the Palmavir Bahir. Let's share a little about Palmavir. Palmavir is a biomedical scientist whose research lies in the field of neuroscience. After receiving her PhD and completing her first position as a postdoc in her native London, she moved to Tampa in 2009, where she has continued to work as a research scientist at the University of South Florida. Palmavir has a true love for science and the potential it has to benefit people, society, and our planet. For these reasons, she and several like-minded friends established Scientists Inc. Welcome. Thank you so, so much. What's the mission and purpose of Scientists Inc.? So if you go by our website, our vision is to inspire a love of science in everyone. Um, our mission, we refer to creating unique connections between people and science. So I, as a lifelong nerd, have always been passionate about science. I've always found it absolutely fascinating the way we understand the natural world and the universe. But I appreciate that for very many people, um, quite often when they left high school, they had no interest in science. Like if you don't have that inspirational teacher, if you don't have something that really drew you to the subject, you're not necessarily going to carry on with any specific interest in it. Now, the problem for me is that I think that science has so many benefits for society, for the environment, for our health, that it's not just a shame that people don't understand more about science, but I think it's kind of negligent on the point, the part of the scientific community. The first thing I would say is that you as a taxpayer pay money into the funding bodies that pay for our research, right? So our lab is largely funded by the National Institutes of Health. And as a result, I feel an ethical obligation to tell you as that taxpayer where your money is going, right? And there are various ways that people can communicate science. Uh, the problem is that it's not going to be easily accessible to everyone. So that science has this history of being this ivory tower, this institution which likes to communicate amongst itself. So people write scientific papers that other scientists will read. They go to conferences that other scientists will attend. But you as an individual, how do you get access to that information? Well, not easily. So essentially, Scientists Inc. is set up as an organization to help connect you with the science. It's to help provide that bridge so that you have accessible information. So when you're, when you're trying to understand what's happening in the world, COVID is an excellent example, right? So this particular virus, science has helped us understand that there are viruses and bacteria which can be transmitted between people and just avid hand washing is a good way of helping prevent some of that transmission. Science is rapidly developing vaccines for us right now, which is incredible, the amount of time that it's taken to get there. Science has also created the technology that's allowing us to stay connected in a pandemic. Like we're using Zoom right now. None of these things would exist without those scientific advancements. But yes, how do we convey that kind of 
what happens behind the scenes to you uh, is essentially what we're doing with Scientists Inc. And currently we're doing that through our two largest programs, which are the Taste of Science Festival. I think it's amazing that there are so many science festivals to draw kids, which parents will take their children to, but we felt there was a real gap with like these large scale events for adults. And so we created Taste of Science to help invite people to learn more about science. But rather than trying to get you to come to the scientists, we were inviting scientists into the spaces where people go. So whether it's bars or restaurants or city parks, whatever it might be, it's a place that you hopefully already feel comfortable going. It's somewhere you would go to be with your friends and family. And by inviting the scientist into your space, hopefully this is a way of kind of developing trust. You guys yes. are trying to get to the regular Joe or Joe Etta to understand that after science, after high school, science still matters, correct? Absolutely, yes. So tell me the story of how you guys are found it. Did you find yourself in a lab and you said, okay, I want to, we want to start science. Tell me the story behind the founding of it. It started with a group of us meeting over a drink. The idea for the festival actually came from a group in Europe, that, oh, the UK, that was already carrying out this kind of science festival, and we wanted to be able to bring it to the US. As a result of that, we started talking a little bit more, and we also came up with the idea for our Two Scientists podcast. So now we have these two different programs that we thought, well, these, these are great. We ran those for a year or so, at which point we realized that actually in order to make good programs for people, you need some money. In order to get that money, we, we had the options of for-profit or non-profit, and we decided that the non-profit might work better for us because that would allow us access to some of the bigger government grants that could help fund us in the long term. That's essentially how the organization was founded, was just on the basis of a couple of programs that we thought we would love to be able to expand on and the understanding that in order to get that money, the nonprofit model might be the better one for us. What's on the horizon for the organization? Like a lot of people, we are currently in this tug of war with what we should do thanks to the pandemic. So our, our programs were all in person. Our festival takes place at the end of April. And so this year we found with the various lockdowns that it just didn't happen because we couldn't have people coming into public spaces to mingle. And since then, what we've done is we've adjusted so that we have all of our programs online. Sadly, we get so many emails from people saying, oh, I'm really looking forward to when we can have these in person again. But essentially what we're doing is trying to find new and interesting ways to engage people in an online format. So whether it's having Zoom webinars, so we're still asking scientists to come and meet and explain their research and give the audience this kind of platform to be able to ask questions that particularly when it comes to the events around the pandemic, we think is hugely valuable to listen to an expert and to be able to ask them directly, okay, well, what should I be concerned about? What should I be looking forward to? You know, when am I going to be able to see my family again? So for us, it's finding new platforms for doing this, new ways of engaging and working out how we are going to continue to earn money given that our festival is our kind of primary source of income. 
Uh, I understand a lot of nonprofits are going through um, some budgetary hardship because of the pandemic. So, is there another art? Some other organizations that fund you, or you know, besides the the festival, do you have any partnerships? So, not direct partnerships. Um, we've started working together with a group recently, termed the LiveSci Collective, and that is a group of. Currently, we are six nonprofits, and those include Science Friday, that's a large NPR show, but they also exist as an independent nonprofit. There's another group called Skype a Scientist, there's the Story Collider, Biobus, there is the Rock EDU group, and they're the ones that produce this program, Data for the People, and us. So we haven't actually received the larger government funding yet, we've received some smaller grants from other outreach organizations that are looking to fund these kinds of programs. And yes, the majority of our money comes from the festival where we sell tickets and we get sponsorship. But as a result of this collaboration, we are now applying for a large grant amongst us so that we can carry on funding our programs. Okay, so I know you mentioned data for the people. Tell us what data for the people is and how has it made an impact in this pandemic? So actually that's um, something that we kind of piggybacked onto. This is a program run by our friends and colleagues at Rock EDU, which is the Science Outreach Center at Rockefeller New, uh, University in New York. And they had this idea to make scientific publishing more accessible and understandable to folks outside of the scientific field. Essentially what they did was for a period of uh, six to eight weeks, they asked a scientist to explain a scientific paper by breaking it down into language that was non-technical. Their programs are dedicated to K to 12 level students. Uh, a lot of the students that tuned into this particular program are from high schools. And so essentially what it was doing was it was getting the scientists to, to talk about the, the kind of the, the intricacies within the paper and have these students then go through and try and understand what it meant. And again, a, a question and answer session at the end so that they could get a better understanding for the science. So we didn't start this program, but we had the, the great pleasure of working with this organization in order to be able to help explain specific papers around the COVID pandemic. Tell me about a failure within Scientist Inc. that you experienced and what you learned from it? Oh, goodness. Um, where to start? <laughs> <laughs> well, we grow from our failures. <laughs> we do. We do. And actually, I think that's, that's an important uh, message that we try and convey as a part of our science outreach is that failure within science is also normal. But failure, I guess, for me as an individual, I think there are probably a couple that stand out. And potentially the first one is just launching into creating a nonprofit that was going to be, in our case, we're an all-volunteer organization. So we don't have any paid staff. That meant that I took on a lot of administrative work as well as having a full-time job as a scientist. 
And if I could do it over again, potentially, I think we would start off as a fiscally sponsored organization. So we don't have a huge budget. So it, would, it wasn't necessary for us to launch as a nonprofit in our own right. And I think as well as that, one of the things I've been realizing recently, particularly in, in light of the Black Lives Matter movement, is the way our organization is currently structured is it's easier for folks from privileged backgrounds to be able to volunteer with us. So if you have a lot of time and you have a lot of energy, then yeah, it's great. You, you can spare the time to help work with us. But I think there are people from particular backgrounds which have, they don't have the time necessarily. And I'm sure they would still love to work with groups like ours, gain the experience. And I've been realizing from that, that potentially we need to be more mindful of what we offer to those volunteers. It's not a one-way street, right? It's not them just plugging in their efforts for our benefit. Whilst working with our organization, they too should have the understanding that they have opportunities to grow. And so we are thinking of organizing kind of small grants for people who are particularly interested in expanding their skills within science outreach and science communication, since this is the kind of the mission of our organization, and find new ways to attract volunteers from kind of more diverse backgrounds. Because I think a lot of the platforms that we use to, to attract volunteers, some of them are just folks coming to our events who kindly offer and they sign up to our lists to, to offer their time. But I think things like um, a volunteer match, for example, I'm not sure of the, the kind of the, the backgrounds of the people who sign up to those kinds of platforms to offer their time. So again, it's being able to expand how we advertise our volunteer opportunities and for people to understand that we hope that there's something of value for them by volunteering for us. It's not just a one-way street. I hope you guys get more volunteers, right? So you can spread the word about science, scientists at the Joe and Joette level. Um, so what's another scientist that you look up to and why? Is it Bill not a science guy or no? <laughs> so being from the UK, I didn't know very much about Bill Nye until... I don't know, maybe five, six years ago when I started to um, learn more about science communication efforts within the US, I would have to say the one that stands out to me and was the most popular for us in the UK is someone like David Attenborough as a conservationist. But I also want to say that there are so many incredible scientists, women scientists, scientists of color who potentially have been overlooked in the past and are now making a name for themselves by doing really unique forms of communication and science outreach. So one phenomenal example is if you are on any form of social media, I know she has a big presence on Twitter and Instagram, is Raven the Science Maven. And oh, look her up. She is, she is phenomenal at creating these little videos which talk about science, but she wraps them. Like she is, she does them in a hip hop style, which makes them, I think, really catchy, really accessible. And they're, they're just super cute. She is a real creative talent. So 
I would say there are lots of up and coming people. I also don't like to pick that one person. I mm-hmm. think that science is definitely about collaboration. And the more great names we have, the better both sciences and science communication is. Those are a couple that inspire me, but for sure you should go out and see the names of the people who are popularizing science right now. Cool. So everybody look that up. Get, get to know our scientists. Okay, so this is about your team. What makes your team stand out and work in your team grow? I think for most of us, it's uh, the, the kind of the mini communities we've developed within the organization. So we've always been, since we're chapter based, we've already been an online organization. So we've already been communicating, working virtually uh, since long before the pandemic started. And we have regular meetings that allow us to discuss not just the work we're doing, but Occasionally, we'll just scrap the work and talk to each other about what's going on. So there's a particular group of us who meet up. I know I talked about data for the people earlier, but we, within our organization, have set up our own version called Peers and Pubs. It's a similar idea, except now, instead of just having the scientists explain to the people watching, we have uh, a family member or a friend of theirs who join us for essentially what we call the show, So that now they're explaining to someone on screen who can act as a proxy for the audience. So when they start to look a bit confused or they have questions, they can do it in a way that makes the audience feel like, oh yeah, I'm part of this event, but I digress. So this this group of people who are working on peers and pubs, we are currently scattered across the United States. And actually there's even one member in the UK. And I think we just enjoy spending time together as well as being able to be silly and creative about this event that we we are putting together so i don't know if there's this one tangible thing about that it's just a group of people who have come together and found that we get on in that particular group so where do you see scientists inc in the future I feel like if we truly want to be on an organization that is um, concerned with making sure we are, we are inclusive in our work, I think to stay a volunteer organization will hinder us. So we need to grow to the point where we at least have a few volunteer, not volunteers, but employees. And at that point, we need to be serious about our fundraising and making sure that we have a stable income that will pay for several members of staff who can make sure that we have a solid base to make sure that everybody coming into the organization has realistic expectations for how we want them to create events for them to understand that we need for this community to be kind of diverse, inclusive, uh, have an understanding for what science communication really means. It's not just talking about science. There's a lot more to it than that. And so for us, yeah, that this is, this is kind of the point where hopefully within the next few years, we can create some positions which will be permanent staff to, to help continue expand, not just the, the chapters that we have for our festival, for example, but to expand on the programs that we run. So I think we have a lot of talent that can do a lot more good 
if we have that stable base. So where can our listeners find out more about Science Inc? Where can they donate to? Each one of our programs has its own website, but you can find links to those from scientistsinc.org. Our other programs, tasteofscience.org or twoscientists.org, which is our podcast. And you can go to each one of those sites. We'll have a donate now button. So if you have a particular program you're interested in, that's how you can do it. So at Talking Nonprofits, our mission is to connect nonprofits to the community. In your own words, what is community to you? For us, community immediately means the people working within our organization. Without that community, we couldn't produce the kind of programs that we do. For each of our chapter-based organizations, it is the people who are within the area of the science events that we hold. So our festival invites local scientists in institutions that are in your backyard, in your neighborhood. That's a whole other community there. People who don't realize this groundbreaking research is taking place right under their noses to meet those scientists in person and appreciate that they're also human beings with families and likes and dislikes and you know, a love for beer whilst talking about science. Community also includes the people who aren't easily represented. So I appreciate that a lot of our festival events happen in places that might not be inviting for all members. And I know that the, the neighborhood that I live in, for example, is a very mixed bag and it is rapidly gentrifying. And I appreciate that, for example, my neighbor who is an older African-American gentleman probably would not go to our events because they're not designed for him. And so community also means to me that the people that we can touch with our events. And so that means that we ourselves have to have a better understanding for who they are. Wow, I like that definition. And thank you, Parmavir, for being on our podcast. I have learned so much, just learning more about scientists and and things like that. And uh, I will encourage all of our listeners to go to Scientists Inc., and also to donate. We want to make sure that the word is spread at the local Joe and Joette level. And, and I love the fact that Kamavir said that she wants science to be inclusive. I like that. Inclusivity is so important, especially, it's always been important, but especially right now, because I think me, we had a conversation before about this new vaccination that was coming out. And of course, we know the history of African-Americans and vaccinations and how they're not going to go and be the first ones to vaccinate because of the history, our past history of negative science, I guess I can say that, towards African-Americans. But I like the fact that she wants, you know, to go into neighborhoods and organizations that is more inclusive and more diversity because that's what's going to make our world better absolutely thank you you so much of course it's been absolute pleasure speaking to you today you too you too thank you